0: Today we'll be continuing to go on in Acts chapter 7, and I will read for you in your hearing verses 17 through 43. Hear now the word of God. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his, mother's, excuse me, his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Then Moses saw it, and he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers the father of God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them and now come I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation with the congregation in the, in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts, They turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away. And gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to, slain, to, bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech, and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile Beyond Babylon. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this reaccount of your work and fulfillment of promises given to your people. We also thank you for this admonition that we would look into our own hearts this day at the idols that we have, where we thrust our ruler and our redeemer aside to worship things of this world. Help us, Father, to be encouraged by this passage this day at the fulfillment of your promises, but also help us, Father, To come to you in repentance and in faith, thrusting aside not Jesus, but every idol that encumbers us from giving you our full worship. Help us now this day by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your name, Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I've decided to break up this particular sermon, or in some Bibles I've seen it actually listed as a speech. It's definitely a a sermon of going through the Scriptures, going through the accounts of what God has given to His people in His Word, and truly applying it to His particular audience that was listening at that time. We recently went through and talked about Abraham and talked about Joseph. And here we are now, kind of in the core of the sermon, because if you remember, the accusation given to Stephen was that he was like Jesus in the sense of what they perceived to be speaking against this place, this temple, this land, ultimately the promises given to God's people, and also speaking against Moses and the customs that Moses had been given down to them and that they, they believed or they proclaimed that they were hearing, adhering to. And so it's important to know what that accusation is as we understand what Stephen's response is. And it's really easy to keep it in mind, I think, if you put everything in peas, that there was this promised land for a particular people But the thing that they're missing out on is that they were going to come through a promised person. They were thinking about their promise as a people. They were thinking about their promised land and their temple and the land that they had before them. But one of the things that they had failed in how they were perceiving what was going on at this time when Jesus had already walked on the earth and died and rose and was ascended They were forgetting about the promise of the person that would make all these things happen. Every one of the covenants, I've been going through a study with the covenants with the men, young men. And we notice in every covenant, there is a promise, ultimately, of a person that's going to accomplish the full fulfillment of all of the covenants. And here we are having to listen to Stephen give a defense to those accusers saying that he is speaking against the very covenants, that he is speaking against the very promises. So he goes back and he goes through God's mighty deeds through his people going from Abraham into Joseph and now highlighting with the biggest chunk of his sermon focusing on Moses because that's where they were honing in their attack. And so this is a defense, but it's also a proclamation of the very covenants that God has always been proclaiming throughout the Old Testament and the very things that Jesus proclaimed to his disciples. Stephen is doing nothing here any different than what he has learned from Peter and what he has learned from Jesus Christ. He is doing it again with the same hope of the promises of the fulfillment of those promises, that people would eventually, hopefully, through the proclamation of the word, know who Jesus is, to get it. So I was trying to think of a title for this sermon, and maybe you can tell me after what it maybe should have been. I was thinking maybe it should be called The More You Know, or You Don't Get It, Um, You Always Resist, You Stiff-Neck People. Um, The Coming of the Righteous One. I was trying to think of different ones that you see to help you understand the theme that is here throughout. And ultimately, I believe that a good title for this sermon would be You're Not Recognizing Jesus. Do you know Jesus? And my question for you today in this particular sermon that I hope that you would leave with is do you know Jesus? Do you recognize Jesus? Now, I know that most of you are baptized in, in the church, and so you might go, "Why are you, don't make this into just an evangelistic sermon. But no, this is remember, this particular sermon is for the people of promise. This is for the church in that sense. These are the people who have been given the covenants. And so this sermon is very much for us. And the same question is, do you recognize the true Jesus? And are you following the true Jesus? Are you walking with the true Jesus? Or has your definition of Jesus been so skewed and twisted by the lies of the world that you're actually worshiping false idols? Well, I want to ask you today, how many of you here today are are idolaters? That's more encouraging than I anticipated seeing. I thought nobody's going to want to raise their hand (laughs) to admit that they are idolaters. But if you know your word of God and if you know your heart, you know that you're an idolater. And so let it be that this passage in the proclamation of his word today would be like the cleansing of the temple, that it would be the cleansing of our heart, that God would continue his work of that cleansing by acknowledging or um, exposing the idols in our own hearts and that he would cleanse them out. As we put ourselves in the shoes of the hearers here, and be careful not to put ourselves quickly in the shoes of Stephen, to make ourselves assume upon ourselves that we have it already figured out. Stephen too himself, I am sure, had his heart laid before the Lord to be able to proclaim such a passage as this. And I will tell you at the end that the disciples were continually recognizing in themselves how they were following a false idol a pagan idol the highlight of this particular passage and the grace of this particular passage is to help us know who jesus is in the very beginning of this particular passage it points out in this transition from joseph to moses that the time of promise drew near now keep in mind they're accusing stephen of speaking against the promise. And he says that when the time of promise that was given to Abraham was coming near, which what was that promise, but that he would have a nation of people That he would be fruitful and multiply, which is an attachment to the very covenant with Adam. That there would be a nation of God's people and that it would be mighty. And he also told Abraham that they would be enslaved. And so here we have Peter highlighting that the time of that particular promise, that phase of promise, mind you, of the big promise of what God is doing and will continue to do even for us, that in that time... They had become and had grown into a great and mighty nation under the captivity of a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. It's important to notice these things of where there is the lack of recognition when it says that this Pharaoh did not know Joseph. He was ultimately saying that this king, this ruler of the land, did not know of the promises of God, did not know what God had done, because at that time, surely when Joseph was working for the Pharaoh of that time, that he would have seen and heard the mighty deeds that were occurring and the grace that was given to God's people, inasmuch as they were able to survive the famine and to be able to multiply to the place that they are then. But this particular Pharaoh no longer recognized God. And they saw, this Pharaoh saw that Israel was becoming a mighty nation and a mighty people in fear struck this Pharaoh and said that we must thwart this growth of this particular nation or they will overcome us Here we see the battle lines being laid forth between God's people and the pagan people. And the pagan people were going to try to crush and to thwart to a degree, because keep in mind, these are their slaves. They wanted to keep them at a place of servitude for them, not a place of full destruction, but not a place where they would be overrun and that their kingdom will be diminished. Let us think about that as we think about how we are. As God's kingdom grows through the preaching of his word in the participation of the sacraments, as he grows through even our suffering and through persecution, we will find ourselves, as we are still those idolaters, we will be drawing lines like that also with God. And we will find fear that if we submit to the growth of God's kingdom, that it may crush our kingdom. And often we will do things to reshape the direction of God's kingdom for our purposes. We as Christians and as those in the church, we don't want to deny the faith, but we want to reshape the growth of God's kingdom to fit for our kingdom. We see that here for those who did not truly recognize the mighty deeds and the wonder of God was wanting to reshape the path of God's kingdom to serve their own kingdoms. But we see that in Exodus 2 verses 24 through 25, that even though this Pharaoh did not know Joseph. This Pharaoh did not know God. It says that God heard the groaning of his people, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew that even when our kings of this earth and our leaders of this earth fail to recognize the true king, fail to recognize the true God, God himself will remember his own word. He will remember his own promises. As these did not know who God was, God is ultimately saying here in this Exodus passage that he will know who he is. He will know his glory. He will know his steadfast love. If you remember with the covenant with Noah, the purposes of that particular rainbow was also to remind him of his promises. God reminds himself of who he is, and we are reminded in that of who he is and what he is going to do and what he has done. They took up the typical Agenda and strategy, is, Egypt that is, took up the same strategy that you will see consistently with all of those who are pagan worshipers. He, they sought to destroy the children, namely the male children of the Israelites. It's important to see this in the story. It's important to look at this particular theme that as Stephen highlights what is going on with that time during Moses' time, we will see here in the book of Acts also this proclamation of how there is sexual immorality rich into the people of God. And we see at the end of this particular passage where God had given them over to the worship of Molech, and refund, and the two consistent things that you will see with all pagan worship, then and today, and I guess until the Lord returns, is that when there is pagan worship, there is the blood thirstiness to destroy children, and there is the hyper appetite for sexual immorality same thing was going on there these are the marks of demons these are the marks of satan fighting against the kingdom of god they thought that if they would go after the offspring of god's people that they would thwart which is actually fairly, fairly logical for the enemies of god because from the very beginning of god's covenants he has been always promising that a Savior would come through the offspring of God's people, namely Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that Satan would do such a thing. And here we have it happening again. But when Moses, thwarting the plans of Satan, God thwarting the plans of Satan, was born, Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Verse 20. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 that... The midwives feared God, not the king's edict. Think about this circumstance where Pharaoh had made an edict that all the male children of the Israelites must die. We were talking about this at the dinner table yesterday, or, what, or maybe this morning, I can't remember of how that must have been like, because here is this edict being placed before the nation, and how would they know if they're... That these babies were still surviving. Well, early on, when the midwives did not kill them, Pharaoh went to them and said, Why did this happen? And they said, Well, the, the Israelite women, they're just, they're so hardy, they, they have these babies so quickly, we don't get to them soon enough. Pharaoh says, Well, from just, then on, you find a baby, a, a boy baby, you just throw them in the river. Now, you think about the mask edicts today or the vaccine edicts, or if you remember last year, the, the number of people that you could have during a particular celebration and how people were actually calling their neighbors and, or calling, telling on their neighbors to authorities saying, these people are having a lot of people or these people are going out and about all the time. There are actually phone numbers for them to call. And we think that that is tremendously oppressive. Can you imagine at this particular time, that it wasn't just this virtue signaling of whether or not you were having a lot of people in your home or wearing a mask, but did you kill your son? This is pretty intense fighting against God's people. We fall quickly to the fear of the king of this day with very minimal amount of things. But. These Hebrew midwives, which is a wonderful way of how, you know, if you go back and read Exodus, very early in Exodus, you have this highlight of these heroes of the faith were the midwives that did not fear Pharaoh, but feared God because they recognized who God was. They recognized the fear of the Lord. They recognized his might, and they could compare. I have Pharaoh who says that, who could kill me on this earth, and I have God who can kill both body and soul. I am going to submit to this God, these Hebrew midwives, and it says that God blessed them with families. We have the same question before us today as we consider the things that, and we'll have to consider even more in the future. It is very likely and very promised that we are going to have to continue to have that put before us. Are we going to fear not just what the leaders of this day are telling us, but our culture, our neighbors, the ideas of the culture that is around us? Are we going to fear God or are we going to fear man? We have this little sub sermon inside of this, of how this salvation of the Lord came through the faithfulness of midwives. Moving on. Moses grows up. He, is being, he has been trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and Here we have Stephen giving us insight that we don't even have even in Exodus. It said that his heart was drawn to go visit his brothers in verse 23. And it says that he went to the children of Israel. And when he saw one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And it said he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation. I went back and I read some more of Exodus, and I'm like, there's not a lot of indication in Exodus that indicates or tells Moses that he is going to have this particular role that we see in Exodus. So we have some further insight from Stephen that there was something in the heart of Moses, even before he heard from God in the burning bush, that he was going to be playing this role of a savior for God's people. He had it there in his heart, and he supposed that his brothers would understand this, but what? how did they respond? It says they did not understand. Sticking to the theme, just like the Pharaoh who did not know God, and it's going to continue to magnify and get to the point that Stephen wants the hearers to see. They did not understand that Moses was sent to save them. Now remember, the Pharisees there, they're accusing Stephen of getting Moses all wrong, attacking Moses, and he is using their very argument against them and saying, you're not getting Moses. They did not understand when their Savior and Redeemer was right before them. They respond with, who made you a ruler and judge? Stephen doesn't highlight this in his sermon about Joseph, but that is what Joseph's brothers said to Joseph when he told them of the dream. He, they basically said, you are going to be our ruler. They were basically saying, who made you our ruler and redeemer? This is the response of those, even among God's people, who have twisted the understanding of God's covenant to make it into an idol for themselves. They do not recognize the very promises of God. Going further on, it says that Moses is to be their ruler and redeemer. They rejected, again, reminding us here that their question to Moses was, who made you a ruler and a judge? Let us stop here a minute and think about this. As we hear God's covenant promises proclaimed in his word, do we respond to God's word in that way? I tell you, as a pastor, I am scared to death in a sinful and weak way of telling you what I'm seeing in his word sometimes. That you need to obey God in this way. That you need to change the trajectory of your life and that you need to submit to one another. You need to be doing the things that the Lord called. I am fearful of that rejection often that you see throughout history Because in our hearts, we will say, who made you ruler and judge? Who am I? Me, Charles Humphrey, to tell you what to do with your life. Often I start thinking, well, how can I tell the people in my congregation, or even tell people sometimes in my family, what to do with their life when I am frail and weak myself? And Moses, too, if you remember, when he was standing before the burning bush, thinking back at his life, is like, you want me to go do this? But we have to remember that God is not telling you and not telling them to remember the greatness of Moses, and he's definitely not telling you to think of the greatness of me. He is telling you to follow his word. And I need, as I think about proclaiming the word to you, not to think that it's me telling you this, but to do my best to submit myself to the word, to tell you what God has said, because he is ruler and judge over us. I know that when I hear God telling me to do different things through his word, I I even question him. Like, are you sure you know what you're talking about? This question is repeated twice by Stephen, telling them, this is your question to Jesus, ultimately. I am just here pointing you to Jesus, and you all are asking this question, who made you ruler and judge? And he's saying, Jesus is the ruler and the judge that you need to be listening to. We have to get these basics right now, or we are going to crumble when we are put in places more like we're not there yet. We might feel like we are in this age now, but we're nowhere near some of the things that God's people have had to be put under when it comes to wicked rulers. And we don't even have our basics right. We're not recognizing who is Jesus, to know who has the authority to tell us this or that, to know which pastors to listen to, what pastors to follow, because we are not recognizing the source of that authority, which is God, because we're not in his word. We don't read his word. We don't meditate upon it. We don't hunger for it. We want to have pastors and we want to have speakers, we want to have preachers who are going to basically serve our kingdoms. Just like Pharaoh wanted to take what belonged to God and to twist it for the purposes of furthering our kingdom. Let us not put a deaf ear and assume that we are not like the Pharisees here. We are often asking that question Who made you? We react to authority today because we have plenty of. Signs and plenty of examples of abuse of authority. So we'll say, you know what? We're just not gonna listen to authority. We're not gonna submit ourselves to a pastor. We're not gonna submit ourselves to a congregation of people. We're not gonna submit ourselves to a session. We're not gonna submit ourselves to deacons. We're not gonna submit ourselves to husbands. We're not gonna submit ourselves to the people that we work for. We're our own independent people who made them ruler over us. And the answer to that question is God has. That if they are commanding things consistently with obedience to God's word, we are to follow these authorities. Stephen here has been appointed to go and proclaim Even as a deacon, he is here proclaiming the word, pointing people back to Jesus. Do we recognize the authority of Jesus? Do we know how to even judge the authorities of our day to know when they are telling us to submit faithfully unto them? Or is our default, they're they're going to be abusive. They're going to be power hungry, so I'm just going to stay away. When we do that, we are rejecting the authority of God. We are not submitting ourselves and recognizing who is truly our redeemer and our ruler. It says that Moses here led them out, performing wonders and signs. What he's doing here before the Pharisees is he is showing the parallels that Moses was a shadow. Moses was only a type. Even Moses himself, when he quotes, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. He quotes Moses, telling them that he's not the primary prophet. Here these Pharisees are celebrating and defending, saying that they have it all figured out about Moses. And he's saying, even Moses told you that there would be a prophet, that there would be a promised person beyond this religion that you have been holding on to. Then he says, all of the fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside, and their hearts turned to Egypt. This is one of the most perplexing parts of all of this, and but maybe maybe the thing that we could be most um, understanding of. Think about what ultimately Egypt is to Israel. They are—it's basically they are a type of sin. They are the captivity of sin. They are the enslavement of sin. And when we think about our own sin, we think about the fact that we are enslaved. To sin apart from Christ. And as we still are in the flesh, we are still having those chains being tossed off. But look at what Israel did. It says that their hearts were turned to Egypt. Our hearts are still turned toward our captors, our hearts are still turned toward the captivity of the enslavement of sin. We still have an appetite. For sin. We like it. I mean, that's one reason why we continue to do it. We like Egypt. We like being enslaved. We like the things that it offers. It fulfills momentarily, for a moment, our pleasures and our appetites and our taste. It's interesting that a lot of people will reject godly authority because of the abuse that they have seen or maybe even even experienced, but they forget that the reason why those leaders were being abusive is because their appetites were given to sin. You never see anywhere where there is a leader, whether it be a husband or a father or an employer or a pastor, being abusive because they faithfully submitted themselves to God's word. It's always because they were given to the appetite of their sin. They were given to the appetite of their captors, even their present or former captives, assuming that maybe some of these were actually believers, their appetites were still for Egypt. Their heart was still turned toward Egypt. This is the human condition but the sad thing that's the end of this story with Moses that is different with the story of Joseph cuz in Joseph there was a grace they began to, they recognized Joseph as being their savior and then they received the benefits of following Joseph as their leader but here they're continual thrusting aside God's appointed prophets, God's appointed rulers, God appointed redeemer, they're thrusting aside of that. It says that God gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, which means to create to stars and planets. Rephan was considered to be the Saturn God in some Interpretations of understanding the God of Repham. They were basically worshiping the creature instead of the creator. It says that God gave them over to that. And then even quotes Amos in judgment against God's people that they took up the tent of Moloch and the star of the God of Repham and worshiped them. Whenever this happens, amongst God's people. We take the things that belong to be used as homage and worship and service to God, and we give it to earthly pagan things. And it says that they even rejoiced in the work of their hands in verse 41. Instead of rejoicing in the work of God, we will rejoice in our accomplishments. We will rejoice in our success. Brothers and sisters, we spend a lot of time patting ourselves on the back as a people. It's amazing in social media the things that even which are religious in tone will go back to this is about me. When we go to churches today and we look at the music that's being sung, it's ultimately about how God has done this for me. We are tremendously self centered people we will go through much more pomp and circumstance for graduation ceremonies, for victories of this particular accomplish or that, than we will simply to come and worship the Lord on Sunday. And I think mainly one of the reasons why is that when we come to church, we see each other. We see sinners. We see a pastor who is a sinner. And we think, well, I'm not coming to worship them I mean we come thinking that we're not doing that but in a sense we act like we've come to worship them and so we belittle our worship down to as if we were coming to worship one another and we don't give it the kind of honor and respect that we should but when we go to other things that are centered in us we make a big deal we get all excited about it I want to encourage you don't come here for me. <laughs> don't have a perspective of you know what I, I'm. It's, I don't want to. These people I'm I, you know I, they, they kind of get on my nerves. <laughs> they're not you know they're not really that great of people. I don't really like them as much as I like some of my other friends. When you come to worship on the Lord's day, come for the Lord because. We're only here together because he has commanded us to do so. I mean, truly, if he did not call us to come together as his people, it would be a lot easier, at least in an earthly sense, to just be me and Jesus. We wouldn't have to put up with other sinners. We wouldn't have to be reminded of our own sin, because you know what? When we see other people sin, we tend to respond with sin. So if we just stay away from people, we won't have to be reminded of that. When you come here, come here out of obedience to the Creator. Come here out of obedience to the one who has saved your soul from hell. Come here not because of anything about these particular people, other than the fact that God has put these people in your path. And come and rejoice in the works of His hand. Because otherwise, you're going to feel defeated. You're not going to get out of my sermons and of themselves because of anything that I have that is going to give you any kind of real food. Only what comes from his word will be the things that will feed your soul. Only the things that come from the Holy Spirit will be the things that enliven you. And he chooses to choose you all to come together to encourage each other. But through those means, he chooses... To find glory and to feed his sheep. Do it because God tells you to do it. As we look at this, just real quickly, looking at Moloch and Riphon, I just wanted to point this out as a reminder to us, because when we think about Moloch or Riphon, we're thinking, you know what? We don't worship gods like that. We don't have idols that we go to. Moloch, we don't have an idol that we go to where we take a child of ours and we lay that child in the statues laugh and they kill that child or they burn that child. We don't do things like that. This doesn't apply to us. And I would tell you, you are dead wrong. We have in almost every city a place where you can go and take your child, your actual child, and kill that child for the purposes of rejoicing in the work of your own hands so that you can continue on with your career, so that you can continue on in the comforts of the life that you have, so that you won't have to have the scorn of the embarrassment of maybe getting pregnant because we have already given in to the false virtue signaling that motherhood is a low state of being for a woman. You must be a career woman. You must be a power woman. Because we fear Pharaoh more than we fear the God of creation. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, it says that when they were cut to the heart, they asked Peter, what shall we do? He says to repent and to believe and to receive the Holy Spirit for this promise is for you and your children. The calling to have children goes all the way back to Adam. It is a part of the covenant call for us to celebrate our children, to celebrate motherhood. You think that maybe the church is bowing down to the mandates of the world concerning this virus. We've been bowing down to this false God concerning our perspective of motherhood for generations. And we've been worshiping that God in the church, we guilt women if they choose to follow Titus chapter 2 when they prepare for their life. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how. We are already worshiping this God so much that we've already confused the covenant understanding of Scripture when it comes to children. I tell you, I am amazed at how Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians are coming closer and closer together. But one thing that I have not seen broke is the right exegesis of covenant children. And I'm not going to apologize for this. I know that some of you may be leaning more toward Reformed Baptists. But the reason why is not because of just good exegesis of the scriptures. The reason why, in my opinion, and I stand boldly on this, and I'm stepping aside a little bit because it doesn't point it out perfectly in the scriptures because there's no such thing as a, or there's no statement about Reformed Baptists in the scriptures. The reason why the Reformed Baptists don't like the idea of covenant theology is because those who proclaim covenant theology has dropped the ball. They've seen Presbyterians not disciple their children. And so their reactive state to that is, is to reject covenant theology so they can actually treat their children like they're sinners. And that's a sad state. And that actually makes them more honorable in some sense because of the disobedience of the people who actually do have the right exegesis of Scripture, that children are part of the covenant people of God. And so... Because people have failed to treat their children like God has told us. You know what we've done to our children? Presbyterians have sacrificed their children to the false god of Moloch, But not discipling them. I feel firmly about this. Because I've got really good friends who are Reformed Baptists and I say, give me the exegesis of why you believe what you believe. And they'll go, you know what? Just The experience that I've had is that Presbyterians, they just failed to disciple their children. I said, you know, you're right. But that's not exegesis of scripture. That's the failure of the church. We've got to go back to his word. We've got to go back to the ruler and the redeemer to understand how God gets things done. We've got to stop sacrificing our children to Moloch by teaching them to to worship a pagan god. We've got to teach them they belong to God. And they are to repent and to believe and to follow after him. Yeah, abortion is the really bad thing. But the reason why we go down that slippery slope is because we've already sacrificed our children to a false god. Sexual immorality. We'll see this in Acts chapter 15. The church has always been dabbling around with their appetite for sexual immorality. It was here amongst Egypt, and it's here amongst the church in Acts. We'll see that Paul, in his preaching, he says, you know what, just just focus on these two things in Acts 15. He says, if you all could just stop being sexually immoral and worshiping false gods, just focus on that. And think about that. And what draws people to be sexually immoral? It's our appetites. It's our self-worship. It's not being thankful to the creator for how he made us and what he made those things for. Here we have prostitution and this hyper self-appetite. What's the same thing now with our pornography, our addictions to promiscuity, our addiction to infidelity, and our unchaste behavior. Every single pastor that I know confesses to me that they were unchaste. I'm serious. I don't know one pastor that's a good friend of mine that actually talks to me about stuff like that. We lament and repent for our sins. This should not be the way it is. If we are holding on to the power of the Spirit and the power of God, we should not be like this. We have this kind of idolatry in the church. It says in Acts chapter 15, when he told them, he said, Just abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from things that have been strangled. And from blood, it sounds like, well, that sounds so weird, all these things. We don't do these kind of things. Right in the middle of that, right in the middle of this idolatry is sexual immorality. It's, I, I, you can ask my older kids, Knox and I are talking about it. I have a very low expectation of teenagers' ability to abstain. The culture that we live in, not just talking about the worldly culture, the culture of the church is so willing to give in to that. So quickly, as I in my own life did, that it is not, in my mind, something that we have the maturity in the church today to overcome. This message is for us because we do not recognize who Jesus is. I apologize for the length of the sermon, but I want to end here with this because I had to end at this particular point of the sermon because another sermon has to be preached about the temple and about the end of Stephen's life. But I did not want to leave you with such a grim moment. I prayed that the Lord would give me a close to this sermon that could be encouraging to you. See, what you have here is that the, the Israelites, their hearts were given to Egypt Which is different than the hearers earlier on in Acts, when it says their hearts were cut and then they were drawn to repentance and faith. But let me tell you the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. You might think, well, he's going off to another sermon, but no, I think it's perfectly fitting for this moment. Because remember, Stephen is not coming up with a new idea of how to proclaim God's word to God's people. How many of you know the story of the road to Emmaus? I think I've now rated it maybe the third favorite story I have in the Bible. The story of the road to Emmaus has to do with when after Jesus rose from the dead. And this is when they've already recognized that his tomb is empty. And there were two. I can't remember how to say his name. Cleopas? And it's likely that his wife was with them that had heard about the empty tomb. They were walking to Emmaus, which is a seven mile walk, which I think somebody said it's about three and a half hours. They're walking to Emmaus and they're talking Says there's two of them going and they're talking and Jesus comes along with them and starts walking with them. Girls, can you all not pay attention to whatever you're paying attention and listen to stories is an awesome story. About the risen Lord of Jesus Christ, He was walking with them, and they says that their eyes had kept them from recognizing who He was. And He comes up to them, and He says, "What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk?" And Cleopas answers, "says Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened these days?" And then Jesus says, "What things?" He says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God, and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amaze us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they had not found his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see. Now, you might think, well, there's nothing wrong with that statement. There's obviously something wrong with this statement because of how Jesus responds. They, had, they were really close. They had Jesus in their mind. They had saw what he did, and they saw and recognized that he was a man of God, but they still weren't getting it. They still didn't recognize Jesus, and they didn't even recognize Jesus when he was right smack dab in front of them. They didn't, they didn't recognize it. And I think that's a lot of us. You know, we have God's word. We have his sacrament right before us. And a lot of times we think, well, that's not Jesus. That's not what we anticipated. They are saying here, this is not what we anticipated to happen to Jesus. He was crucified. And here it is the third day, and now they can't find his body. And it sounds kind of foolish what they're talking from our perspective, but they're thinking things weren't working out. And it says that Jesus responded, oh, foolish ones. That's why I know that they're slow to heart, he says, to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? They had seen all that Jesus had done, and they still did not get it. They were still not seeing Jesus. They were still not recognized Jesus. And Jesus is being very much like Stephen here. Stephen says, you stiff-necked, you always are rejecting the Spirit. He doesn't go as hard as... Stephen did, but remember Stephen's responding to an aggressive bunch of people. He still says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. He's basically saying everything that you just said, did you not realize that Christ had to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And then it says, here's what Jesus did. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He did, this is why Stephen did what he did. He goes back to Moses. Remember, they had a seven mile walk, three and a half hour time. You got a lot of time to do that. You think my sermons are long. He went through and he went through Moses and all the prophets and he explained to them how on all the scriptures was about him. That's what Stephen's doing and how all of the scriptures going back to Moses and Abraham is about Jesus. So they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted like he was going farther. I always get tripped up when Jesus is messing with them. This is not the only time he does it. He was like, not, I, you know, I don't, you know, Jesus, he likes to play. It's not deception. He can't be a liar. You know, so he's, It's just weird. Jesus is walking on, pretending to go on, it says. And then they invite him to so stay with us, for it is toward evening the day is far spent. So he went to stay with them and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Brothers and sisters, I am sorry if I'm not good presenter, but I, my prayer for you, my prayer this week, and my prayer continually will be that as we open up the scriptures together, that your heart will burn and that you will see Jesus. That as we go to the table and the breaking of the bread, that you will recognize the true and real Jesus, and that the true and real Jesus will take every definition and understanding that you have twisted and Satan has twisted in your mind about Jesus and cleanse that. It says that as they were talking about these things, Jesus Excuse me, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit. It says, and they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and others that had gathered together. And they said, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road to Emmaus and how he was known to them by the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, now keep in mind what happened here went back to Jerusalem they found the other 11 disciples and others that had been there they're all kind of gathering around they're all trying to figure out what's going on they said he has risen and as they have gathered together in Jerusalem it says and Jesus appeared to them peace to you and he says why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts why are we troubled Why are we given over to fear? Why do we doubt what God says? Why are we afraid to obey what God says? Why are we afraid to trust his word? And then what he does is just amazing. He says, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. Why did he do that? He did that to show them that his body was real. That there is a true and real resurrection of the physical body. That he is reigning over both heaven and earth. Both what's in heaven and what has created on earth. That this is a real victory over death. They're not just seeing a spirit. Jesus has conquered over death. And then what did Jesus do in this tremendous moment of revelation to the people? He has shown himself in the resurrected body. He is eating with them to show that it is real, that this promise is real. It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He preaches the gospel to them. He is the gospel and he preaches it to them in the flesh by opening up the word of God. This act that Stephen did before them was a grace before them. And it doesn't look like they received that grace in the murder of Stephen. But I always want to remind you that Saul was standing there. And he heard everything. And he responded. His heart was cut. And he proclaimed the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. This is a grace to you to have to go through this passage in Moses. It may seem grueling in how I do it. And again, I apologize. This is the power of God's word. May it pierce our hearts. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We are not strong enough to bear it. Give us the strength of your spirit to recognize Jesus, hear in your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and thank God for all his many provisions.